Hey, Dr. Kuntz, are you poor in spirit? Uh, I'm poor. So, yeah, definitely in spirit, but also just literally, yeah, confirmed. Uh, what does poor mean? I mean, <laughs> as we talk about class warfare, yeah. as we talk about, you know, how to decide what is really good for your neighbor, right? I think understanding poverty kind of comes into play. And then, you know, yeah. poor in spirit, that's a fascinating old way of talking that doesn't seem to fit to an age without souls. No, it doesn't. And the closest we get to a sense of sort of nobility independent of income usually just gets assigned on the basis of like race or biological sex or something. So it doesn't go very deep. So poverty can be either an absolute measure or more, I think, importantly for most people, it's a relative measure. So it means something different in Canada than in Nigeria and different things in different parts of the country. So yeah, I mean, economically, you could look at all different kinds of measures. I guess what I meant was simply that relative to like, I, I'm nowhere near having to worry about whether I'll get a stimulus check because I make too much. So right, right, right. You know, right. So in that, you know, you know, I'm good to go. I'm good well, to that's go. Just it. That, but... I, I feel as if the word poverty has come to mean everything below the middle class, where I think yeah. historically it means everything below the elite. And that schnooker right there seems to be worth all the marbles, if you, if you can follow. Now, maybe spinning this a little bit toward the conversation from last week and mm-hmm. what we're going to talk about more today, I mean, I would imagine that the people who are going to be accused of things like domestic terrorism, as well as the people who are ultimately protesting in things like Black Lives Matter marches, that these are people who are, in fact, poor. Um, maybe. Oh, so, interesting. So... And that relates to, I think, the notion of poverty of spirit uh, or poverty in spirit that is important because although, you know, economically I'm not like, you know, destroying all competition, I feel that because of my faith and the choices that I've made in life because of that, I am, I live an extremely rich life. Like I, I'm not, I'm not filled with envy or something or a desire for tons of stuff I don't have. And that's a great blessing to, to live in that way. I think that even if you made two or three times what I make and had two or three, you know, fewer children than I do, you could still feel very impoverished because the issue politically and the reasons that I think people are willing to resort to violence, which is some of what we'll be talking about today, is because they have a sense of emptiness or loss or sometimes straight up envy that will allow them to do things that are unthinkable for most people. And the stuff that we're talking about today concerns a time long before, you know, the entire Republican Party or every Trump voter or any of the enormous categorizations that now happen in the media every single day, all white people, whatever, right? right. right? Long before that, there were people who were categorized as, you know, beyond the pale, which happens in every polity. But what we're looking at are people who get that desperate. And in the case of like Black Lives Matter, the organization is not at all. No, that's why I tried to say the people actually on the street yeah, for them. Uh, well, and, yeah. and but I but I think like as absolute economic measures. So if you started saying, all right, well, um, let's look at reparations. Okay, 
who if and, it, and you would have to be brutally honest about things that people can't really talk about in public. Hmm. So who pays taxes? Hmm. What is the racial breakdown of actual taxpayers, individual taxpayers to the federal government? Who benefits as a net racially from the federal government? Whites, blacks, Asians, Hispanics, non-white Hispanics, you know, like, okay, you'd have to do that. They, they do this, but they only do this for states, hmm. you know? So they'll say, well, Connecticut pays in more than it gets and Oklahoma takes out more than it gets, you know? So they do this with blue states and red states, but they don't do this with race. And so they can't, they can't really tell you, like, if you're white, are you fairly likely to have contributed a certain amount toward you know, welfare, education, lots of things that are received as services, they, they won't talk about that. And I think that the reason for that is that if we were measuring things in sheer economic terms, you could come up with one answer in the same sense that I could say, I'm poorer than most Americans in sheer economic terms. Does my life feel empty or poor? No, it's, it's overflowing with joy, to be honest with you. And that really cannot be measured in economic terms. But the same goes for negative things. So if we said, okay, you are a black female, how likely are you to have received this benefit and that benefit and this other economic benefit from the state or federal or local government? Does that actually satiate your demand for things that belong to other people? Not necessarily. Hmm. And part of the difficulty is that we're not really able to talk about economic issues nationally in the way that we did, like when, whether we should go on a gold and silver standard simultaneously was like the major issue of 1898. And I think that's because the spiritual issues underneath economic, like purely economic questions, budgetary questions, those spiritual issues are complete, they're a giant mess. And so we can't talk about things that seem like lower temperature, like healthcare policy, or tax policy. Satiation is a matter of the soul. And if right. you don't like the word soul, then just use psychology because it's the same word in Greek, more or less, or very connected in the words of your mind. Uh, what's going on inside your head? And if you're trying to be satiated, that's, yeah, that's, that's not a material reality. Right. Uh, the hungry right. man who eats too much simply gets sick. There's a, there's a place where contentment has to come before you're, you're sick. And right. uh, yeah, that's really, that's interesting. So then, Gordon Call, what was yeah. his beef? What was he? He was mad, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was mad. Okay, okay, yeah, and I think that it, it's it's significant to see that there is a reality that occurs in the United States simultaneous with the same reality going on in Western Europe. And this is what Europe is not something I'm going to be talking about today, but it is significant to know that certain public opinions about American history and the Constitution stuff, and I'll detail that with Gordon Call today, the, it, those were okay to publish about, to talk about, to hold rallies in favor of in the 1950s and even the early 1960s. There are political realities that change with especially the Johnson administration onward that make those things off the table. And this is a common theme in American conservatism is that you will find somebody defending something that 20 years previously was totally fine to say in public. And once it becomes totally not fine to say, then that person will often drift into immense frustration and respond 
sometimes violently. I don't believe everything that the government says about the people we're going to talk about today, but I do believe some of it, especially in the case of Gordon Call. So Gordon Call is a farmer in North Dakota, not a group notable since roughly the 1890s for their political activism. And he- Is that the Rough Riders? Is that a Rough Riders reference? No. 1890s? What was the 1890s? No, in the 1890s, North Dakota, and even down into the New Deal, North Dakota is actually fairly, it's called the Populist Party, but it huh. has elements of what we would think of as like left-wing economics oh, interesting. combined with social conservatism, all in the name of something that Gordon Call is going to get really upset about in the 1970s, which is the destruction of the family farm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. kind of evident. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and North, North Dakota is one of these upper Midwestern states or, or kind of northern Great Plains states that had such a large German and Scandinavian population that the politics just sort of have different options hmm. historically. Like North Dakota still has a state bank, which I don't think any other state has. Huh. So Gordon Call gets upset about both a combination of the disappearance of the family farm, which is also the disappearance of rural towns that serve those farmers and therefore of a lot of interconnection that then just goes away combined with he works periodically not all the time but periodically in texas oil fields Hmm. and it's in texas that he gets in contact with a group of people who will eventually be called sometimes by journalists sometimes by themselves the posse comitatus movement which is a Latin term. I mean, we have the term, people know the term posse. It's the idea that free men in a common law polity like Britain or America should join together and defend themselves for certain purposes that the government doesn't acknowledge or is actively opposing. Okay, so that sounds kind of, it's a little arcane. Here's one more arcane thing, and then we'll go into what happened in the 70s going into the 80s. The other arcane thing is that Gordon Call, like a certain fairly large number of people, including even like legal scholars that I've read who don't have any political interest in saying this, are not entirely sure that the 16th Amendment, the amendment ratifying a federal income tax is actually constitutional. And there are... There are different grounds for that. Some of them are extremely technical, like the text of what was proposed by Congress is not identical to the text that was ratified. Oh, interesting. Precisely. I mean, it's not significantly different. It's a loophole. It's a loophole. But then also there are maybe more substantive or, or large arguments that a direct tax on wages is not even the intention of the amendment. And therefore, you know, okay, so that has none of that has fared particularly well in courts, but that's what Gordon Call comes to believe. Yeah, I mean, why, just just as an aside, why would it? You're expecting yeah. the beast to be, <laughs> right. to, to yeah, be right. dealing with reasonableness and not, you know, priests defending their class. Continue. Right, right, exactly. So once he comes to believe this, he begins to participate in something, and it's it's notable that that things like this pick up in the '60s because. I really think that what we are dealing with today is the rapidly decaying sort of frayed end of something that began to unravel in the 60s. I don't I don't really think that we are we should at, at all be surprised at both the resemblance 
of ideologies, but also at the idea that something like Gordon Kolb and his movement can't really exist until the 60s because you can't get enough people that radically disaffected from the American polity. What yeah, he the, does, the tie yeah. of, the, just the tie of, uh, of TV and then the movement of color television and uh, media becoming more of the mainstream diet of man, not read, but seen, just goes yeah. hand in hand with this, which I find yeah, curious. Well, yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, at the point where we're debating, you know, whether we should stand a gold standard or have a, a, a bimetallic standard in the 1890s, you're relying on the person who has enough sort of agency to vote. You're relying on that person to actually understand questions like this or, yeah, to, right. you know, in the 1830s, vote in national elections on the basis of tariff policy. A lot of Americans wouldn't even know what the word tariff means. He's a rapper, so, right? I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just completely right. kidding. It's a right, pretty right, cool right. name, though. I, I, right. I might adopt it. <laughs> so you're, re you're relying on, on levels of literacy that I, I don't think are there. And I'm not sure they have been there for a long time. But what this causes, this conviction, especially about taxation, causes Gordon Call to do is to, is to willfully stop paying his taxes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the first kind of crucial point about today is that if you seek confrontation with the federal government, you will not only receive it, but <laughs> it will probably it will probably escalate. Yeah, I fought the law and the law won something like that, right? Yeah, well, it, it's it's also like someone who is advocating direct confrontation with a governmental authority instead of sort of a workaround. Okay, give you an example. Like if you if you want to disobey a mask mandate as a group, right? Why don't you keep whatever required signs posted and just Ignore not it. enforce it? Right. You know, like like rather than publicly demonstrating how you disagree, because the issue with publicly demonstrating something or filing a document with the Internal Revenue Service saying that you're not going to pay taxes, all that that does is it makes your it one, you're assuming someone cares and will think about it. Right. That's not how key. politics... Super key. That's not how politics work when nobody's capable of thinking. Okay. Well, I mean, Politi Thomas Jefferson seemed to make it work and it all went well. And so we believe that myth. It's like, by, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. The spirit of the Declaration of Independence. Here I go. It, Lutherans do this so much, too, in our fights. We're like, I'm going to write a paper and then everyone's supposed to read it and like follow mm -hmm. me. And yeah, so but but you're saying he didn't just like not pay his taxes. He wrote a manifesto about not paying his taxes and sent it to the IRS. And then didn't well, pay they his were, taxes? and there there are other there are other markers because what's what's kind of burgeoning in connection with the refusal to pay taxes and, and notice that you're not paying taxes is also going to be what will eventually be called, I think, large, largely by journalists, the sovereign citizen movement. So these these guys are not going to get driver's licenses. They're not going to get license plates for their vehicles in some cases. And the point that they're making is a constitutional point about the nature and, 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 you know, dare I say it, I think technically they're right. Mm -hmm. Technically. In the whole scheme of... Well, the spirit of the idea seems to be where they're at, you know. In the whole scheme of Anglo-Saxon legal history, right. they're right. You should be free as a free weapons-bearing man, not a slave, because slaves in Anglo-Saxon England aren't allowed to have weapons. 
You have weapons. You're a free man. You should be able to determine how you conduct your daily life. So the the law of it – did you bring this up recently or did I pick it up somewhere else that the foundational idea is that a man's home is his castle? And a yeah, free we man, talked about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that, that's, yeah. that's just – to bring that back again, right? Your home is yeah. your castle and the law – of common sense flows from that reality. So that's right, like right, your, right. that's your epistemology. You start right there. Home is castle. What is a castle? What's a home? Here we go. And yeah. from there you can figure out, you know, what breaking and entering is. Yeah. And so, so I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with him necessarily like on the theory of what he was doing or the theory of what people are doing. Who's when... going to disagree with the idea that the DMV isn't really kind of what we should all be doing? <laughs> I mean, we can all kind of sympathize with that in a license yeah. plate. I mean, I, I I get it, but the path to license plates, so we can all debate it. So yeah. no problem. But uh, to see that there's a, they're not just radical, insane zealots, that they are thinking people with a platform of understanding yeah. their own place in the world, they're not really intending to be uh, violent and yet because of the oppression they feel it would seem that that's what's going to rise up right and so you do see I mean, little marks here right the oppression does create the uh the revolt yeah well and i and i don't and i and i don't think that you know marx was necessarily like wrong about every historical circumstance of industrial britain and and you can see and actually gordon call's arguments had been used 40 years earlier by blacks who would eventually form Nation of Islam, but it has a predecessor organization called Moorish Science Temple of America. Hmm. And they did a lot of the same things that sovereign citizens would do in the 70s and 80s. They refused to carry federally recognized ID. They refused to answer to what they, in that case, they would call their slave name. So, and that, that was all predicated on certain theories about lots of things. But the basic point that he's making about the right of an individual citizen in our polity and in our political tradition to challenge authority. I don't, I don't think is actually theoretically wrong. I think part of the issue here is that you become a domestic terrorist. The moment that I think you become lacking in savvy about how to achieve the things that you want. And instead you try to behave in a politically straightforward way in a place and time where what is straightforwardly happening or what is openly being said or described is precisely not what is happening. Right. So, so let me, let me, the way you said that uh, sentence structure probably could just be reset again and feel free to say it one more time after this. But if the, if the goal here is to be good citizens and that means to not accidentally be considered domestic terrorists by an insane religion looking for them right now under every, which, you know, which, broom and uh, and uh what, sputnik craft i don't know they're, they're looking to find it somewhere yeah. um the way to not be that the way to avoid the the eye of sauron uh is yeah. to not directly assault the american government with your stuff yeah and certainly not by yourself practically <laughs> speaking right <laughs> sorry so and yeah. and, and, and the yeah, and I, and I think saying so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think part because I think part and parcel of the idea that you are free also goes the idea that on your own you can achieve certain things, and historically that's just extremely unlikely to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the, the the you are yeah. special, you can do it all, change and move the world thing neglects to tell you you need a team in most instances right there with you, and you got to yeah. be team players. Uh, right, part of the problem. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So keep going on that same thought though. 
and so so what th- this begins is basically like a, a tax problem and he's charged with tax evasion but then becomes a fugitive from serving his sentence okay so he was going to get like just jail time for mm-hmm. Is this white collar crime technically? Is that what that would be? Technically, it is. Yeah, you know, even though I mean, if you're a, gonna if you're gonna do it, hmm, yeah, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, technically, well, and even the the distinction between white collar and blue collar crime is really just movies. I think, yeah, is well, it's the, no, I think it's the regime's understanding that like if you don't physically hurt someone, it's not as bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which leads to the libertarian myth of victimless crime. You know. So, because there's always a human soul involved, uh, that's, mm. that's the basic historical insight. So, okay. So wait, wait, tax- so you're saying psychology has something to do with what people do both before and after they do it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you really are. I mean, it's amazing. The secularist world just doesn't realize they're talking about souls all the time. Psychology is soul study. Anyway, uh, Gordon call. What did he actually, uh, he's, he's a fugitive. He's running. Yeah. Where's he run? He was in Texas. How far does he get? Bonnie and Clyde. Is it, is it exciting? <laughs> um, it's a it's a little exciting at the end. Okay, so he eventually serves prison time. It's really only eight months. Some of it goes away, basically because of good behavior. I mean, this this is not a guy who's like, you know, harming people yeah, when right. he's in prison, right? He's so, a farmer. He's just a farmer. Yeah. Didn't pay his yeah. taxes, wrote a letter. So he's released in the late 70s. But the problem is that once you're released, then you go on some sort of like official surveillance, AKA parole. And he violates his parole under circumstances that are probably like sort of hard to suss out. And maybe he was right. Maybe he was wrong. I don't really know, but the violation of parole coincides with the beginning of the 1980s. And what happens at the beginning of the 1980s is what gets called the farm crisis. And, and sort of remarkably, if you try to research that, you won't find a large Wikipedia article for one, even though it was the cause of massive change throughout the American Midwest. So lots, hold on real lots fast. of suicides. Uh, uh, so, okay. I, I want you to keep going on this farm crisis. I'm trying to place when my grandfather lost his farm. I'm thinking it's seventies, not eighties, but it mm-hmm. might've been eighties. And he started yeah. selling insurance, traveling insurance. The last 10 years of his life died of cancer, uh, bomb garden. So Reaganomics is my question, though, real quick. I mean, is this is this at all related to Reaganomics, the farm crisis? Not directly. No. Um, okay. It really has to, it 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 has to do with I think longer term issues with American agriculture because there is enormous overproduction of things that have become commoditized, and therefore enormous drops in prices. Right. So so pull back and do that again from where you were before before I brought in Reaganomics. So we have the farm crisis. We've got suicides. There's a problem with supply and demand. Yeah. And you already you already have basically because of efficiency, gains in efficiency, you already have rural areas in places like Medina, North Dakota, where Gordon Call is from, hollowing out. The farm crisis exacerbates that because now you have to do so much more to be as equally profitable as you were in, you know, 1971. Because yeah, you're not and, growing for subsistence life, you're growing to sell, no, no. And, to buy and, into and you, the economy And you, and and you the haven't been for a long time, no, but, and, you're, and, but you're massively indebted, you've got all kinds of difficulties, you have thin margins, and those margins disappear because 
the market is oversupplied. Yeah. You're in debt for the land. You're in debt for the utility uh, vehicles. Uh, those yeah. vehicles will need to be updated regularly just to stay competitive. Uh, you have issues with the weather that doesn't always cooperate. So you also are carrying pretty hefty duty insurance, which as a group then makes the entire thing reliant upon the feds even more because of bailouts, yeah. a bailouts, a bailout. And yeah. all of this, you're, you're, I don't want to be rude to the good farmers in my church body and who, whom I have loved and served as a pastor, but it is a form of serfdom. You have a much nicer home than the thatched roof cottages of, uh, of the medieval world. But you're effectively in a surf situation, and the landowner can come along at some point and take it all away, and you know it. You know it. Uh, that's why you got to keep going. That's why these guys won't come to church uh, certain times of the seasons, uh, is because it just is that uh, cutthroat. I also remember talking to guys, too. It was amazing. I knew guys who were hands in some of the big facilities that were receiving grains, and mm-hmm. uh, they didn't want land. They're like, ah, this is better. It's so much easier just to go to work, get done, go home. And mm-hmm. uh, and so it's turning the whole thing into you know kind of a what, assembly line um, right uh, approach and the you know the big guys do it the big guys do it but then this is where the fragility of the system comes in anyway I've, I've taken this a bit of field farm crisis though how's this connected with Gordon Call same time well Gordon Call while on parole in the late seventies early eighties gets involved with guys that were advocating that free men should form their own townships independent of the legal townships that you would find like on a map. And the point of that is, again, that they reserve to themselves on their basis of their understanding of the law, a right to reform the polity if it's in need of reform. Okay. And, and our system obviously doesn't recognize that at all anymore at any level of government. So that's, that's what they try to do. And he is on his way away from going home, a meeting in Medina, North Dakota, that will set up one of these townships so that disaffected and distressed farmers can get together and offer some sort of formal resistance. Unionized? To especially, well, not exact. I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to offer resistance to foreclosure specifically. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I mean, in a sense, it's, it's the... I say unionized. The idea is that the unions began for the same reasons. You see abuses of power. You come together as a group to try to get what you can. But the history of power is you don't always get it. Sometimes they just crush you, which I don't know. You said he left a meeting. That doesn't sound so bad. Was he, he was driving home. What happened? Well, he he violated his parole. And oh, right. Right. And you can see you're going to see this as well with Ruby Ridge is that the government lives off technicalities. And so the idea that American law, American taxes, lots of things that kind of run how your life works and and looks are extremely complex. Mm. And the reason for that is because complexity encourages the advancement of bureaucratic power. If it's clear what you're not supposed to do, then it's easier not to do what you're not supposed to do. If it's never that clear, then it's extremely hard to avoid breaking the law. So he's leaving a meeting. The specific circumstances of how he violated his parole are not entirely clear to me. But he's at that point confronted by U.S. Marshals. And you might ask yourself, okay, why U.S. Marshals? Like North Dakota is a state. It's not a territory anymore. And this is where different levels of policing are important the whole way along. Mm -hmm. And it's another thing that I think you're going to see coming 
in that I think that defund the police really means nationalize the police. Hmm. Because these different levels of infraction and offense mean that instead of a sheriff who may or may not actually know you, and in this case could be like your second cousin, you get somebody from far away who was posted there for a job and is trying to move up to, you know, another level GS, whatever, and will, if he successfully apprehends you. So you just have a different relationship with a federal law enforcement agency than you would if you're nailing, you're nailing. Yeah. Yeah. You're nailing to him or he's nailing to you. Maybe he's got, well, a, lizard yeah, both, he's right. got a lizard head underneath uh, some you put on these glasses. Do you, do you ever see a movie called They Live? You ever hear about this? <laughs> no. Someone was telling me about this just last week. I haven't seen it. It's based on a story called a short story called eight o'clock in the morning. And then there's a comic book I'm going to try to get a hold of rather than watch the movie. I'm going to try to get the comic book that was uh, in 1986 done on it. Anyway, the whole thing is that Rowdy Rowdy Piper apparently, as the main character, finds these glasses that let him see that all the media is sending obey and uh, submit messages at all times to mm-hmm. most people, except for these aliens who look like people because there's a radio signal broadcasting and protecting them. And these are the elite, of course, right? And the, what do these aliens all look mm-hmm. like? Lizards. Um, so it's 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 all coming home for me. Roddy Roddy Piper has sent me back to Reaganomics, and this has, well, not everything to do with U.S. Marshals. And a TV show called Justified, but those are all degrees of connection that bring us back to why you really want to have someone you know be the person that you're dealing with when you're dealing with conflict. Yeah. And that that is something that you don't maybe do by saying, hey, government, we're starting a new town against you. And that's maybe the lesson to learn from this. But keep going with Gordon Collin and draw your own lesson, too. And so what happens is they, they basically get into a shootout with these U.S. Marshals who try to stop them. Involved in this is is going to be the death of one of Call's sons, <laughs> and Call will end up fleeing. At that point, he becomes the subject of an enormous manhunt. So this is 1983, and they surround his farmhouse in North Dakota. So that's this is also one of your commonalities between Gordon Call and Ruby Ridge, is besieging the homes of American citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this, they've done this before. They did this. I mean, 1983 was 38 years ago. And people sort of tend to forget these things, I think, largely because of our media environment. They forget that things like this happened. And therefore, they're like shocked when, you know, uh, Taco Carlson gets attacked by the Department of Defense, right? Mm -hmm. Right. On Twitter. Now, what... (laughs) They've done much worse. Right. They surround his farmhouse. They find all this stuff, but they don't find him. They find him later that year in Smithville, Arkansas, hmm. where he had been actually sheltered by a couple named the Ginters. And in June 1983, a shootout happens there. So again, they besiege that home call and also a county sheriff for that county die and they die in a shootout i mean call dies from being shot yeah. in the head yeah yeah directly it's t- tv kind in of the stuff kitchen. it's tv justified kind of stuff well that's an interesting connection because in addition to things like federal charges for people that harbored a fugitive you also get both written accounts from federal agents of this 
and the 1991 movie Line of Duty Manhunt in the Dakotas. Hmm. Okay, also released in the Netherlands as The Line of Duty, The Twilight Murders. Hmm. And sounded better. I, that was way better. <laughs> way I haven't, better. you know, I haven't tried to see if I could, you know, watch it. But Got to find the short story it was based on, then track that down the comic book. It's, it's more, it's quicker. <laughs> there you go. But I think that what you're, what you're looking at is you also have this sort of pipeline that exists between opposition to government and government slash Hollywood's capacity to rapidly turn that into a form of media that can be disseminated to many people with the complexities sucked out. So I am sure without watching that movie that it tells you nothing about the history of American tax law. Oh, sure. Right. 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 Why would it do that? And so is the medium even capable of doing that? So what you're going to get is just the idea that you have like a bad guy who could be sort of a romantic figure in some case, but will probably show him to be awful enough that you're happy when he gets shot in the head with a Smith and Wesson at the end of the movie. I mean, it makes me think of The Fugitive with Harrison Ford, too, which is the complete opposite story, except it's the same story, except he's the good guy. And so it all works out in the end for him because he was telling the truth or something I, you know, and again, so for me, the lesson so far is as I look at this guy, Mr. Call, and and I can empathize with his plight. So Mm -hmm. we said earlier, you know, he's not wrong. And we mean by that is that his plight seems one I can feel the pain of, I get it. Mm -hmm. But what I don't understand is why you would end up in open fire with federal agents at any point, rather than Mm -hmm. just going into custody, because from where I'm looking at it, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the idea of, of being men of sovereignty means that as a slave, you're still sovereign. You take it. Go ahead. You take it from me. I'm still sovereign. Uh, I have it in my mind. I'm willing to take the consequences of my actions. That's why I would st- – I'm not saying I'm going to do this. But you know, if I were to stand up against the U.S. government, I, I, I reject my citizenship. I will not pay taxes. Well, then I'm going to take the consequences of that. And I guess I guess maybe some worldviews would say that leads to trying to win with a shootout with three of your guys against the federal government while your son's involved. For me, it says just go to jail. Just actually start the process by which maybe later you can sue, you know, once you get out of this chaotic age. Maybe not, you know, again, am I nuts in thinking that? I mean, that seems to be the lesson. That's my lesson I'm drawing is that. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think anything that is governed by like, how does this look right now? And can, can I explain to myself and everyone else right now why I'm doing this, whether I'm going into custody or firing back? Hmm. I still think that that and the stuff that we talked about last week is a failure in the sense that I think the radical Republicans, for instance, could have had what they wanted in the American South as radically different as the South would have looked than it ever actually did or Mm -hmm. ever was or ever will if they had succeeded in their ideological goals. If they had simply been willing to be more patient and shrewd than they were, that is that Direct confrontational violence is always, I think, the result of an, a, a time preference that is way too high. You're, you're thinking that what matters right now is the pose you're striking. And I think that that actually gets worse and worse and worse. And this does have to do with media, because when you are conditioned by how this will look either immediately on the Internet or soon via the telegraph. And I'm not like joking. No, I'm with you. 
Yep. Makes sense. When, when you're conditioned, not only to like process your own thoughts that way, but to think about the significance of your actions in those terms, you will, you will inevitably take actions that are far more precipitous and are generally throwing away a bunch of things as you're doing something that seems heroic to you. Right. And I, I also think that when you don't have time or patience, you begin to force yourself to run out of options. Whereas if you did exercise more patience, you would come up with more options because in the same sense that if you take three days to think about something, your thought about it is going to be richer than if you mm -hmm. gave yourself two seconds. So just run that out over years instead of days. And what I see happening here is largely, honestly, a failure, not usually in the case of, of people like this, not a failure of energy which is largely, I think, the failure of our in-group Lutherans. There's, 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 a, there's just a lack of energy a lot of the time to do things that much smaller groups are able to achieve. But often in the all the cases that I talked about last week and we're talking about this week, I think there's very often a failure of imagination. That is, they are unable to imagine what it would look like if they took 50 years to do something and they were like dead before the end of those 50 years than if they took like two years to do something and, and fixed it themselves. You and made I, me I, want to go eschatological yeah. there a little bit, but I'll, I'll save it for, for another time. Failure of conviction and failure of energy, I think, are, are connected to each other a little bit. But the, the idea of imagination and the capacity to see further ahead than now yeah. – yeah. Without needing it to be, because I, I find that the longer I try to do what you're saying, uh, the less I'm actually planning something long, and yet believing it can come into into kind of come to pass, and thinking and, and long enough or hard enough, or I don't know if that's the right word, but finding the right pieces to move it forward without having to make it be something I'm trying to not let fall apart which seems to be the more, more modern approach to planning is like, I've got this thing, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep it from falling apart. If I take the approach, instead of thinking about things rather than hastening to get them done, instead there's, there's less need to keep it from falling apart. It's more waiting for the right pieces to find, to put it together. And that, that spiritual or, or again, epistemological experience is a big change in my thinking. And I, I don't know, I, I'm going to say I've come to that conclusion from time without the blue light. I'm not saying everyone has to get there to be there, but there's something about then a very much you slow it down. You take the time. It becomes a richer thought. You build on that thought. There's less fear about losing that thought. You don't need to write yeah. it down quite the same way and like keep track. Other, uh, you'll forget it all. There's things you lose and forget too. Don't you know? And the gaslight is real, but yeah, I, I don't know. Can you make sense of that hoobajubu I just said? <laughs> I I think that both in terms of of media and media consumption, but but also in terms of understanding that, and this is this is something that we've talked about in the Discord channel. This is something that I know people have a lot of difficulty with, because we were educated to believe that America is different. And movies like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington taught you that a person with the right convictions and the right intentions can achieve the right things, even at the highest levels. This simply is just not historically how things change. And if they need to change that radically, then the idea that you can go at a problem straightforwardly and people will understand and help 
is usually going to end in enormous frustration. And I think that violence does issue out of frustration, that Gordon Call doesn't open fire on federal marshals without the sense that these people are just ultimate enemies. And confrontation with them is therefore worthwhile. Which is so right sad now. because then the, the myth, though, I mean, this guy who's come to do this job, this he's just a soldier, you know, uh, in theory, you know, he's he's working for the government. But is everybody who works for the government just deserving to be shot as an enemy? And so it, the, the blinding nature of this myth, again, demonstrates to me it's religious polemic. You said something about, you know, if you don't have enough patience and time, you force yourself to run out of something. And I didn't catch it all, but what I wrote down, I think, is just as valuable. Without patience, you force yourself to run out of time. And that leads to what the other thing was that you're running out of. So you actually make yourself run out of time when you won't just believe you can be patient. You just sit there and wait. That That is patience. Maybe the world burns, but it takes a patient man to let it happen. I, I, I don't know. There There is something that doesn't happen until you don't do anything. <laughs> you have to just sit, watch, wait, think, and then that is the time in which your mind will come to a, a better conclusion as opposed to seeking more in the the modern trick or the actually i call it the addiction is to get more i want in 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 eat 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 information and you're forming your insides and you're never letting yourself kind of reform spit out exegete uh deal with all of those things all right we still want to talk about ruby ridge right is that correct do. Yeah. yeah okay so let's let's move to randy weaver trying to get away from it all and why you can't yes yeah yeah, well, because I, I think Randy Weaver is probably more typical in his instincts for most of our listeners than Gordon Call is, in that Gordon Call is fine with confrontation. Randy Weaver does not end up dead, but most of his family does, um, including his wife and his 14-year-old son. And that all started with moving from Iowa to Idaho, basically in order to homeschool and to get away from what he and his wife, Vicki, understood to be a collapsing America. So we're talking, again, late 1970s, early 1980s. So what would a collapsing America mean? I mean, is it the same fear we're having right now? I mean, how, how island is this thing? I don't, I don't think it exactly is. But I think something that is common if you look at people and I often like to look at people on the far left and on the far right in any given society, because I find that they are kind of most willing to look at something in a really stark way, a partial way, but a really stark way. And so I find them often more helpful for understanding what is going on. Like I like to look at like Islamic radicals in France rather than to try to find from a news article, what like an average Frenchman in Bordeaux thinks about something. Mm -hmm. Because the Islamist radical has a clearer view of certain things by virtue of being outside of a lot of other things. His movement or his thought process is going to last longer than the guy who's just your average guy inheriting what he has, which is, again, listening to the tube, tell him what to do. Uh, the other guy's got a, a real worldview built, built around a text, right? And that text and that audible culture that rises up around that, it's going to give a clear sight that someone who's just absorbing again, uh, when you're when you're in the battery for the Matrix, um, you, you just, you're not going to say much interesting. I think that the weavers th resemble people on the left in that the back to the land movement in the 60s and 70s is actually politically indistinct. It's definitely a rejection of things that are unnatural, but the definition of nature is different, not as radically different as it is today, but it's different. And the definition of the solution is going to be different 
you know, sort of, you can divide this sort of between people who went to Western Oregon versus people who went to the Idaho panhandle. Okay. <laughs> you I, know, like, hearing, I mean, I don't know. I remember hearing only that there was this movement at that time of back to the land and it was stupid. They were dumb. They were hippies who didn't do it right. And we should not try to do that because no one could do that today because old people, we don't know how to live like that. We're, we've lost the ability to go live on the land. And if you go try it yourself, you'll just fail and probably be poor and die. So, you know, in 22, I'm like, yeah, college, college. Yeah, go to college. Sports. So, Girls. so I, I think that the weavers are actually sort of like, they're sort of like canaries in the coal mine for what is wrong with America. Because if you see somebody like in the late 1970s saying America aborts babies legally, therefore Satan has conquered it. Hmm. You think, okay, that's crazy. Or like, the top. There are, there are demons inhabiting our, our governmental officials, obviously, because they permit babies to be killed in 1979. That still sounds like pretty insane. Now it's kind of so, like, so you have to kind of drop out to do that. Yeah. If I told yeah. like a normal person, like, you know, <laughs> in California, you know, they're, they're, they might be calling on an Aztec God in public school soon. You know, that's, that he that's might just answer news. Is the bigger issue. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and in ways nobody expects, I mean, not right in that classroom, but uh, New Mexico might just be another thing altogether in a uh, hundred years. And, and I, I don't know if that'd be bad, honestly. It seems anyway, that's a different topic. Dealing with the Latin influence coming north into America in terms of family and impact on culture, uh, wherein working fathers and uh, child-rearing mothers are still part of the society, even after they've kind of been absorbed. That's an interesting other topic for some other time. I don't know if you ever looked into that, but I, I find it fascinating. Uh, the Hispanic influence in most areas I've seen in my life is often better than that of, say, Anglos who just kind of keep to themselves and then die. And the, and then you have the, the trouble with the inner city black population that is in a poverty cycle, you know? So, I, I mean, I, I tangent. So, yeah. The, the, <laughs> um, the, the weavers try to go away. What's happening, however, is something that you see in both sort of right wing constitutionalist or sort of Patriot movement, places, but you also see in Muslim areas of, you know, Minneapolis and Brooklyn and stuff in the 2000s. And that is that federal agents are, they, they police via forms of entrapment. So Randy Weaver's mistake is to be a little too trusting of agents that turn out to be from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms who one of whom undercover asks him to saw off a shotgun for him, which is, mm. it's just a clear violation of federal firearms law. It has been for a long time, but definitely okay. entrapment too. It's entrapment. And so entrapment means that they bring you into a crime that you weren't otherwise going to commit, but with the assistance of a federal agent, you are going to be committing. Yeah. You're convinced then, to commit it by them. I imagine if they really want you bad enough, they'll talk you yeah. into it. And right. if you ever look into how they train guys to talk people into stuff at the federal level, that's some scary stuff. That's some scary stuff. <laughs> so what is going to happen is that the ATF will actually kind of hand off this case to the U.S. Marshals Service. So again, a group that probably you never think of, but plays a big role in apprehending people. I do think of them because the, the TV show Justified was very good. And now that's the third reference I've been able to drop in the show. Um, and the U.S. Marshals, yeah, um, 
Huh. Apprehending people. Exactly. That's all the show was about. <laughs> so the commonality here is that they have to serve him a warrant for breaking federal firearms law. So this actually happens in a siege that develops as he tries over the course of 1990 and 1991 to get away from being apprehended. Hmm. Okay. And there are often delays in these processes. And I'm kind of leaving out a lot of the technicalities of how the case was handled by different agencies at different times. One thing to notice, if you have any realm in which you are at ideological variance with our regime is to notice that they are not nearly as competent as they present themselves in movies. That it's not just all like kind of strong jawed, like former Marines, you know, just getting the bad guy in a ruthless, efficient way. There are drops. Not every agency has precisely the same political orientation. Mm -hmm. It really matters if someone is getting media coverage or not and what the nature of that coverage is. So for instance, Geraldo Rivera, whom people don't remember much of now, but who was sort he's of a like big a, deal. He's like a half conservative, like Trump guy that then really wanted yeah. vaccines. I, I follow him on Twitter because uh, he, okay. yeah, he used to do the show in the eighties and he was one of the first talk shows and got punched in the face. And then Oprah got really famous after that. And now he's making money somehow grifting, right? I, I don't well, know. Well, the, okay. The, the idea here is that he flies over he was doing a show at the time called in, in, in early 1992, spring 1992 called okay. now it can be told. And he hires a helicopter to fly over Weaver's cabin and allegedly huh. Weaver shoots at him. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. So, okay. So that that's the allegedly part is the really important part because that plays into who shows up when the siege that will actually kill members of Weaver's family occurs later on because the reason they bring the federal government brings through the marshal service the atf and the fbi hostage rescue team <laughs> just remember that phrase hostage rescue team the reason those people are all there when the final siege starts at the weaver's cabin later on in the summer of 92 is because allegedly geraldo rivera's outfit was fired upon. Okay. Now that's one side of it, obviously a two-sided thing and you're just taking it on faith. And that, so, so that's why the federal government in their, as they defend themselves in their own inquiries afterward are going to say, that's why we brought the people that we brought. Right. Right. So, um, but I want to go, you said is the FBI hostage rescue team, rescue team, which I'm a tangent, come back and ask about it. it. It makes me think of an excellent movie that if I were still watching movies, I'd recommend called The Negotiator, which has both, oh goodness, Nick Fury, that's not his real name, and uh, Kaiser Soze, that's not his real name either, but two fantastic actors that if you really know what you're doing, you know who they are. That movie is stellar and will let you deal with an FBI hostage rescue team, I think, because uh, they're just so cool. They're amazing, in fact, what they can achieve. So why is that important? You said remember that phrase. Why is that phrase important? Well, because hostage rescue team is like a lot of phrases used by our regime in that it, it, it actually does the opposite of what it says it is. And pay always pay more attention to what someone or something actually does right. rather than peace. what it says it is. 
Right. And because what's going to happen with the hostage rescue team is that it adopts really hostile rules of engagement going into this, right? So ostensibly the problem, ostensibly, like as a matter of law, is that he broke federal firearms sales law right. uh, about what can legally be sold to whom and what you can actually even have on the market. Right. Okay. Does that require coming in with a sniper, with trained snipers, which is what's involved in the hostage rescue team? I, you know, I think that's debatable. The obviously. idea I think would be about minimize losses, you know, only take out yeah. the terrorist. Um, I mean, if hostage rescue team, terrorist kill squad, same thing. <laughs> right. And so what they come in with and what the actual outcome is, is that Weaver's 14 year old son fires at federal agents in the woods hmm. when they shoot his dog. Aww. So someone, someone shoots the boy's dog. So he fires. So they fire upon him. So then he's dead. Right. So you have to imagine like how many grown men firing upon a 14 year old yeah, boy. I, I'm, I'm thinking that that boy went out like a man. I mean, I'm, I don't want my boy to do that, but golly, what a thing. What a, what a terrible thing. And he stood, he stood strong. I, I, can you blame the poor kid? He's a kid. How would he? Oh, so sad. That's all I got. So sad. Uh, but he he died like you know uh, Trojans of old. I mean, on his shield. Not you know not on his shield. Yeah, on his shield. Coming home on his shield. Goodness. Anyway, God. Before before anyone gets to the Weaver cabin, and there's there's another guy there named Harris along with the family, who's you know sympathetic to the Weavers. Before that happens. Uh, Lon Horiuchi, who will also be at Waco with the hostage rescue team uh, as a trained trained FBI sniper, he's going to fire. He's going to wound Randy Weaver. And then he's going to fire again almost immediately. And Weaver and Weaver's teenage daughter and the friend Harris are running back towards the house. Well, that second bullet aimed for Harris actually shoots Vicki Weaver, the wife, who's standing in the doorway, she dies instantly uh, hmm. while holding their 10-month-old baby who actually survives. Hmm. And it's that second shot, not on the fugitive, but on Vicki Weaver. It's the second shot that actually causes there to be any kind of inquiry later on. Yeah, right. Because at that point, they have gone beyond anything that anyone imagined. I think that this is probably a good place and we're getting close to time. So it's probably a good place to pull back. There's more to be said about the weavers. You can look it up for yourself. They eventually get a settlement, but I want to say this, that no one understands what words like domestic terrorist or synagogue of Satan, which is how Gordon call described the U S government. No one understands what those words are going to lead to, but the words matter because they get you to the point where that situation has those rules of engagement or your reaction to being stopped by federal marshals is to open fire. And this is where I, I don't agree with the idea that words are violence, but I, but I do believe that words can very easily lead to violence because people are led by their beliefs. Yeah, ideas have consequences. Yeah. Speaking of weavers, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Richard, Richard Weaver. Can you give me the name of that sniper again? Juan Lon Long L O N Horiuchi. Horiuchi is uh, Asian descent. Yeah, he is Jap. He's Japanese American. He's from the enormous Japanese community in Hawaii. 
And as a sniper, he misses sometimes. I mean, <laughs> Presumably. I mean, they put it, you yeah. say he's coming back on Waco. Like, like he, he missed. He was in a prop. Why, why is he still shooting in Waco? That seems – or am I just getting ahead of ourselves here? Well, you're, you're not because also something to notice here is that the legal processes of obtaining justice take much longer than the government takes to deploy lethal force. So Waco is actually the next year. Right, right. Right, 1993. And the Clinton administration actually announced a hard line against what it described. And I, I think they meant honestly the same people and they meant to deal with them in the same way, but they couldn't use the term white supremacy in the early 90s. I think honestly, simply because America was too white demographically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made political sense. So the way that these people were portrayed, the the Patriot movement, Posse Comitatus, were, were as dangerous militiamen. I remember so, that. That didn't sell well, though. It was like, what are you talking about? Who's it? Well, the very, the very next year, the hostage rescue team is deployed to Waco ostensibly to bring children out of a dangerous situation. Right. So it's sort of the, the legal justification for Waco is about child welfare. Now, those children are actually going to be burned to death by incendiary rounds fired by federal agents. But again, people don't really remember things like that. Right. So they're, they're, the, the loss I of think complex. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. They I, don't until you bring it up. And this is a I'm sorry to, to, to twist this here, but this is part of our big issue. What's worth remembering and how there's too much. Huh. I think I think the loss of complex information. I mean, I I really wouldn't do a format that was any shorter than this or that involved video to any significant extent. And the reason for that is that I think the loss of complex information is actually what makes any kind of republicanism or freedom impossible. Because I need people to have time to think and to process. And if you don't have that, or if you're focused on the fact that like my hair looks bad today or whatever, right? Or you like my tie or whatever, then you're already distracted from processing what's happening because simultaneous with Waco is some attempt at legal redress by the weavers. Hmm. Eventually they're going to get $3.1 million from the federal government. Harris, who was also there is going to get a couple hundred thousand, but Horiuchi is not charged and he's not even charged with murder. He's charged with manslaughter in 1997. Hmm. So it's five years after the incident. It's four years after well, Waco. Cash is a pretty poor repayment. Yeah, right. It, I mean, it doesn't wife. bring anybody back from the dead. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. The loss of complex thought and this connected to the loss of time, which is required for complex thought. Yeah. And this going back mid mid show is connected to patience and right. patience being sort of the the soul muscle by which you force yourself to realize that you can't run out of time. Uh, that even what you think is the consequence that you need to hasten to undo uh, might just be the opportunity you should let play. And you won't know unless you think about it for at least five minutes before you run off and talk about it on Twitter. It was, uh, one, of the, one of the proverbs I found this morning was like, you know, a fool can argue with anybody. This is, uh, oh, God, <laughs> yeah. This is Twitter. Yeah, that's true. Twitter. That's yeah. the truth. 
Uh, I'm thinking for the <laughs> for our title here, we got Posers Rule this week. You mentioned Posers as well, and this has just been on my head, my mind recently, about like my entire existence from probably age six to now, and now realizing, holy moly, I've been a poser the entire time. And what does that mean? And now everywhere I look, I see actors, I see posers. There's a new Musketeers thing that pops up every time I go on Amazon to you know check on my stevia order or whatever, which I did today. Musketeers, and as I look at it, it's like okay, like. Two years ago, I would have thought this looked so cool. It's like some sort of, what, post-Western steampunk Three Musketeers rework with these guys who just look really tough. And then I'm like, yeah, and those guys are paid pansy actors who are posing. It's a stupid thing. I'm going to order my stevia and go talk to Dr. Kuntz. I'm going to get back to making my desk. That's right. Uh, there's something to this. So I want you to say that in yeah. a way more eloquent than I just did. Um, but it, it, it really hits it epistemology this is not just me barking there's something about learning to be that we've been circling really strong this particular episode yeah and i think that something to take away from this in a historical sense is that ruby ridge and waco but not gordon call and i included gordon call for that reason and i didn't really talk about waco they are included as motivations in the press's explanation from day two, but not day one of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And I think that the reason for that is because potentially Timothy McVeigh, who is denoted as the chief bomber in Oklahoma City, and a lot of that is debatable, and I'm not doing that today. But Timothy McVeigh allegedly believes that he is reacting to events from two or three years earlier. One of the things to understand is that in order to understand what has occurred in your own country or your own life, you need a much longer time horizon, both forward as we've been talking about with planning, but also backward with understanding. Because if you don't, I think you're learning lessons that they're kind of like you're, you're, you're slotting into some box. So if you listen to today's episode and you just slot into the, everything that the militia movement, real or not, was saying in the 1990s is right, then I think you've missed something. Because I think that one of the deficits that Gordon Call and the Weavers had in common was a certain naivete about the nature of American government and how quickly Americans could be organized to resist tyranny. I think also you would be falling into, if you fall into the idea, well, they were totally wrong and they were right to be, you know, shot to death or whatever. Then one thing that you have to think about is, okay, well, what, what does that actually make normal? What it makes normal is that the federal government can at any time, if you violate certain laws in a certain way that upsets certain agents of agencies that are not really elected and just go on existing kind of in perpetuity, unless banned and, We attempted that with the CIA that was proposed in the 70s and it didn't work. So why would it happen to things much more obscure? Those those folks can at any time come to you and do things to you and to your loved ones that you don't want done. So if you have a normalcy bias, so if you listen to this and you're like, yes, they were right. They broke the law. (laughs) Romans 13, then your normalcy bias, you have to understand what is now normal and in fact has been normal for a long time. Maybe longer than you've been. It's longer than I've been alive in some of the stuff that we talked about today. So I I don't want people either on the one hand to think 
yes, Gordon Call was totally right. I'm going to make his, you know, his picture is going to be my Twitter, you know, Avi from now on. No. On the other hand, don't have such a normalcy bias that you're ending up just supporting authority that is not only very violent against people who in the whole scheme of things are, were, I mean, not paying taxes on a fairly worthless farm in North Dakota. You know, I, I can think of worse things that people have done to other people in modern America. And this is how the government reacts. A normalcy bias is, is going to hurt you just as much long-term as being engulfed by rage is going to hurt you in the short term. And all that we've talked about really today is people who were engulfed in the short term by someone's rage, either their own or the government's. But to be engulfed long-term by a normalcy bias, I think would just be like a slow burn, whereas Gordon Call or the Weavers were undone by a short burn. I, don't, I had something I wrote down that would have ended all this beautifully. I'll see if I can make it work. It needed to go into the middle of what you're saying. You said so much of value. I don't want to demean it even a little bit. But on the altar of worship to the federal government, which requires the normalcy that we accept human sacrifice from time to time, what we have to see is that that sacrifice comes at the hands of not so much the priests, uh, but the, you know, the axemen that they send. I don't know. They're, they're a holy cleanser as it were, but the good news is that soon they'll be able to do it with flying robots. This has been a brief history of power to white guys. You know who we are or you wouldn't be here.